Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. My friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about storytelling. So I'll tell you a story quickly. Um, my father recently passed away, and this is a story that I told um, in his as part of his eulogy, um, so that people could get an understanding of of the kind of man that he was. So uh, my dad had this great sense of humor, and he never he never told a joke. He didn't know any jokes at all, but situational stuff. He was very witty, and and um, so one day uh, he was visiting. Um, visiting my wife and I out in California and he and I were driving down Ventura Boulevard. I was driving, he was in the passenger seat next to me and we're going to be turning left coming up. And I got a green arrow. I'm getting ready to turn left. So I turn left and the person in front of me stopped. And so I was stopped in the other lane where cars should have stopped anyway, because they had a red light, but uh, so we're standing there and, and we hear this screeching of tires, just loud. We both look over and this car's coming right at us and wow. stops like, like this, an inch from, <laughs> from my dad's, from your, from your dad car, car door. Right. And I'm driving wow. this, this vintage Porsche that had, didn't even have seatbelts. Right. So it would have been Dunsville. So, so it stops right there. And we look, we both look over and the driver of the other car is kind of like trying to balance a cup of coffee. There's paper and stuff flying all over the place and things kind of settle down. And my dad says, Newman, because it was Wayne Knight of Seinfeld. Oh (laughs) my gosh. So he's looking at us and dad just says, Newman, and we drive on. (laughs) laughing for the next six blocks right oh my gracious right to have the have the quick wittedness to just say that in that moment so that's a little story about my dad that i think kind of tells the story of the kind of person he was right well pep we can't really make that stuff up um (laughs) that, that that's just delightful and i mean one of the things i love about our relationship is that about uh every 30 minutes you know you'll uh uh, you will grace us with some story uh, of experience that you've had either in your directing or acting career. And I, um, I love that because we love good storytellers because that's who we really want to be because that's who we are as human beings. We uh, are born storytellers even if we can't at first use words, we like to say that every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for him, looking for her. And they first let us know this with screams and wails. And of course, so do little kittens and little dogs let their moms and dads know that they need them. And in some respects, it's using a language that is pre-verbal, right? That's what our newborns and our infants are doing. And then, you know, they find that first word and their second and third word, and they finally put those words together in a sentence, and then they're off to the races. And we as human beings uh, tell stories because we're wired to do that. We don't just wander aimlessly. 
through the world. You don't really have to teach a two or three-year-old who's beginning to acquire language to tell you things. They want to tell you things. Now, we can find ways to discourage them from doing that. We can find ways to beat it out of them. We can find ways to get them to shut up and shame them from telling stories that they want to tell us. But when children are flourishing, they are simply master storytellers. And of course, sometimes, you know, they tell us stories that we're really tired of. Like, we, I don't need to hear about this for the 10th time that you've just shared with me nine times. But we are these storytellers, and this is how we navigate our life. And the, 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 what's, what's really beautiful for us, particularly as followers of Jesus, is that because we're storytellers and we develop this from the time we're little and we emerge, and we're going to talk about this later, we emerge as these storytellers. There are some things that storytelling in general have, you know, that, start, that storytelling has in common, that, that there's some characteristics of that. But one of the big questions then that we are faced with all the time is the question, in what story do we believe we're living? In what story do we believe we're living? Because we live as if we do believe we're in some story because we keep telling people stories. Your dad... Your dad was telling a story when he said, no one, right? <laughs> when he said story. that, right? he's, he's telling, he's assuming that his audience, you and Nell in the car, he's assuming that his audience is familiar with the story, with, is familiar with Seinfeld, is familiar right. with the character Newman, but is also familiar with this whole notion that Newman is a guy that we love to hate kind of. And, you know, and we're all in this together. We're going to tell the story together. And all it needs is one word spoken right. like a true Seinfeldian. Yeah. It's just beautiful the way that we are always telling these stories. And so in that moment, he believes that he's in the middle of a story that has him in a vintage Porsche with two people that he loves and they've literally just gotten stuck in traffic in one of these like, like divine moments of appointment in which something happens that is nearly tragic, especially for the car, <laughs> nearly tragic. But because it turns out not to be, we can then continue to enter in and tell that story by saying a name, Newman, and in so doing, saying like, Gosh, uh, what a great thing it was for us to almost get hit and not get hit. And look who almost hit us. And now we can laugh and be joyfully connected, even in the face of something that was almost really, really unpleasant. And a lot of, and a lot of what I'm doing in life, a lot of what I'm doing in life in my storytelling is I'm looking for ways to find joy in a world that I know is not easy to live in. Is the way that we tell our own stories, the way that we tell the story to ourselves, our own story to ourselves, um, does that, how, how, to what degree does that affect our lives? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And I think it, it gives us opportunity even here to dive in and talk about some of those characteristics 
to to get to your question, one of the first things that we learn about stories is that for each of us, we have a story that we believe that we're living in the middle of. It's important to know that the table of contents, the forward, the preface, even the first several chapters are all being told by somebody else. Uh, when whoever it was conceived us, that person began to tell a story about us. I was, you know, the fourth of four sons, but my parents were 45 when I was born. My older brothers were 18, 16, and 11 at the time. And when my parents found out that they were pregnant with me, this was, you know, this was in 1962, and this was not understood to be good news. Uh, they were anxious, and, and that at that time, if you're, you know, if you're in your mid 40s and you're pregnant, first of all, questions about you know, how, you know, the, the health of the baby, uh, questions about whether or not the baby, you know, would be okay. People are still wondering that, you know, 58 years later after I've been born. Uh, in addition, you know, my parents already had three kids and the stories that I would hear later would be that the first response of many of their friends was not, oh my gosh, congratulations. You thought you were done with children, but you get to be pregnant again. No, it was not. It was like, what are, like, what were you doing? Well, I mean, like, we know what you were doing, but like, what were you thinking? Oh, you were, and like, it's anxiety. People are worried. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to have this sense that like my story was first, I, I, I was understood in the story of my story as it was first told was like, I'm a source of anxiety. Now, people aren't thinking of me as a live human being as like I'm a source of anxiety, but like this is kind of how my parents are now telling the story of my coming to be. And even afterwards, even right up to delivery, there was still worry and concern about this. And so our parents or whoever it is that's involved, even before we're born are already involved in telling stories about us. And that then leads to the reality that like that process continues right up at the time that we start to find language, right? Everybody else is telling a story about us. They, they, they decide that we're going to wear certain clothes. Like who would be caught now in a onesie, but like they, they put onesies on us, right? Or they, you know, they, they decide that we're going to go for play dates with certain people and because they have good friends, they figure that we'll be good friends with their children. Like, I hate these children. Like, why am I sent to be a play date with like with your best right. friend's kid who I want to whack with a frying pan? Like, why am I, you know, right. but they're telling my story. And this of course continues. And, and so what begins with someone else telling our story eventually begins to evolve in which in such a way that I begin to tell more and more of it. And as we'll talk later, when we talk more explicitly about the notion of attachment, that attachment process is the process through which I become able to tell my story to greater or lesser degrees of health. So we then learn that our stories are always told collaboratively. They begin with someone else. And even though I take over more and more agency at the telling of my story, not only what I want to wear and where I want to go and who my friends are going to be and so forth and so on, and then like where I want to, what I want to do after I graduate from high school and do I want to go to college or get a job or do I want to make all those things that I decide, 
we like to believe and we're told a story that like we are a people of self-determination. I self-identify. That's a phrase that we commonly hear. It's important to know that we only ever tell our stories collaboratively. I am the lead author on a novel that have lots of other contributing authors, co-authors with me. The question is not, do I tell my story or does somebody else tell my story? The question is, I have my voice. Who are my co-authors? So it's important for us to know when people say like, look, I want to be who I want to be. I don't want to be things just because other, you know, I I don't want to have to, uh, you know, to think about what other people want or think about me. That's not an option. Our brain only knows to think about what other people want and what other people think. The question is not, is it me or is it other people? The question is, who are the people who are going to be my co-authors in my story? Which is why we've talked before about the importance of telling our stories truly. I need to know that the people that I'm co-laboring with, my collaborating authoring team, are the people that are going to enable me to tell my story more truly. Another characteristic of storytelling is that from the very beginning, we learn that most of how we tell our story, the most important parts of how we tell our story, is not the language we use. It's all the nonverbal stuff that comes. Imagine going to a movie theater to see the, the movie you've been so looking forward to. And you get there and the lights go out and then the movie starts to roll. But the only reason that you know that anything is happening is because there's only dialogue. There's no light. There's no music. There's no scenery. We just hear dialogue. That's all we hear. We hear words. Not even with much voice inflection. We wouldn't be sticking around for that movie very long. If it's true that 70 to 90% of our human communication is nonverbal in nature, it means that a large part of our storytelling has everything to do with what we sense and image and feel in the brain. Things we sense, image, and feel, along with those two other qualities of what we think, which often is what we're referring to with our words, what we sense, image, and feel. And so when we're telling stories or we invite people to tell stories to us about themselves, like right there, you know, when you were telling the story about your dad, Pat, Newman, the, you know, the, like that says so much because your dad was able to tell us something that included something beyond language. And so this is the other thing. When we are telling our stories, when we think about our stories, when other people are telling us their stories, how able are we and how well are we to, how able are we to pay attention to all those nonverbal cues that are telling us things about stories? I'm going to pause with that because There may be other things we can talk about, but there are some other characteristics that we'll get to in just a little while. It's interesting to me that you talk about the nonverbal and the sense, image, and feel, because as an actor, those are your tools. You know, my career has been since, since really a young age has been all about story, whether it was acting, directing, uh, speech coaching, producing, whatever. It's, it's all about helping people tell their stories, tell my own story. So this subject to me is, is fascinating. Um, but yeah, as an actor, so you're, you, you know, when, when you're doing your homework, you have to go to this place to be so specific about 
what what the senses are that you're experiencing and 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 what you're feeling and 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 you know what what things look like around you and then you've got to be able to embody that so that you can then tell it to an audience that'll then understand it and feel those things right so you know i'm gonna i'm you know i'm gonna ask you to tell a story right what about yes. about about the play so tell us the story yeah so I was a, a, an apprentice um, in theater out of college at Burt Reynolds Theater in Jupiter, Florida. And we were doing a play called uh, And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little. That was the name of the play. <laughs> I had a very small role in the play as the delivery boy um, who comes in with their groceries. It's in New York City. I, I, I come into their apartment. I deliver their groceries. We have a scene. And that's my whole part in the, in the, uh, in the play. So... I ended up having just tons of time to do these exercises of sense, image, feel, smell. What are, you know? What are the sights? What are the smells? And every night I would sit and I would go through the whole thing about I'm at the store. I'm you know we get the call. I'm packing up the groceries. I'm picking the things. I know where the what aisle I'm on to get the different you know products and and take it. And uh, and I go to the apartment. I ride up the elevator. I go down the hall, it's the third door on the left, I knock on the door, I come in, we do the scene, right? Mm -hmm. So one night I'm sitting as I'm waiting for my cue to go in and I, uh, I decided that night for whatever reason, in my mind, the elevator was out. <laughs> so, so I had to walk up yes. these flights of stairs. So I'm going through this whole visualization, I'm, I'm you know, going back around the hall, I'm going up the stairs, going up the stairs, and I get up down the hall, I walk down, I knock on the door. Now, I wasn't imagining that it was 40 flights of stairs, right? So I wasn't coming in like, you know, breathing so heavy and sweating or anything. But, but I was imagining, you know, that I had to go up, it was a different course of action I had to take to get in the room, I had to go up a few flights of stairs, and, and go down the hall and go in the room. So I play the scene, I come off stage, I go backstage and the director comes back and she says to me, why did you take the stairs? Why didn't you take the elevator? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, how'd you pick up? And she's like, your, your thoughts have, you know, this was her and you, you know, you can speak to this or what, what, it, you know, what it is, but the thoughts that you're portraying have an energy to them that the audience can pick up on. And it doesn't have to be overplayed in order for them to feel them. But you had an experience, you carried it with you in, onto the stage, and we felt it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's just such a, a powerful ex expression. I, what, what, you, what you're describing, I think, is this notion of how so much of our story is embodied in us in ways that we are unaware of. So, you know, on, on our podcast, you know, we get a lot of mileage out of the first three or four chapters of Genesis. And we talk an awful lot about where and how our story began. And we, we like to talk here about this notion that humankind begins with mud. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the earth, out of the mud of the earth. And he breathed the breath of life into man's mud and man became a living soul. And so we are dirt and we are breath. And we are, you know, in the, in the biblical narrative, we are created in a certain particular order. There is a certain sense in which 
the thing that we call life that is within us that lets us know we're alive, not just my breath or my heartbeat, but the essence of what it means for me to be alive as Kurt and you as Pepper, that is added to the body. Our physical formation begins, right, as a zygote and it expands into a neural tube and then we form into a fetus and long before we have this sense of sensing who we are. We are mud, we are embodied, and we are telling our stories with our bodies all the time. We're telling our stories to others and to ourselves. And you know, with that in mind, Pepper, I'm, I'm often, this, this gets back to uh, often one of, one of the other elements about storytelling, that so much of it being nonverbal in its nature. When Jesus says at the, toward the end of the fifth chapter, of Matthew in the first third of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you're the light of the world. Who would light a lamp and stick it under a bushel? Who would do that? So I, I, you know, I hear that and I think I hear Jesus saying to Kurt, you're the light of the world. Don't screw it up, right? Just don't screw it up for the love of me. Just don't screw it up. Like, okay, got it. But what if, what if what he's really saying is, I see you and you're absolutely illuminating. You're absolutely illuminating. Like, like a dad would look at his daughter or with his son and say, you're utterly beautiful. You're absolutely illuminating. I don't in any way want the world to miss out on a single moment of you because it has no idea what it has in you. And this is our God with each one of us telling everybody else how proud he is that he gets to be our dad. And he's saying, you're absolutely illuminating. And here's the question we often ask people, to what degree and how often do you understand and believe that your very embodied presence, when you walk into the room, the room's going to be a better place just because you're in it. And you're walking into the room and you're telling the story of the gospel just by you showing up before words ever come out of your mouth. Most of us, like, we're not, we're not thinking this. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, like, make sure that people don't see the parts, you know, I, like, if they see me, like, it's going to give the, the gospel a bad name. Like, I'm, I'm just trying not to screw it up, right? And so... This whole portion of storytelling, first that it's collaborative, and it, and it remains that way until we're dead. But this collaboration is taking place largely with words, but largely without words. It's just our physical presence that comes into being. And there's another element of storytelling, which is that I tell stories, not just because I've got nothing better to do, but I tell stories because I long for them to be heard. Mm. I tell stories because I want them to be heard. I, I, like I, I, I will just, uh, you know, when you did all that preparation work to imagine that this time the elevator's out and I'm taking the stairs, I can only imagine that if I'm in your shoes and the director comes and says, hey, what happened? Was the elevator out? I'd be like, holy cow. Yeah. But at the same time, you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, the story I was trying to tell, somebody heard my story. 
Yeah, I have to say it was a it was a eye-opening experience for me as an actor, realizing the work that I needed to do, the internal stuff that I needed to do before, as I worked on every character. Right. Um, and how specific you had to be and how in order to tell the story, you just can't stand up there and tell the story. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, because I think that, um, you know, my, my complete and utter uh, inexperience with acting at a professional level, you know, my imagining of like, well, you got to learn your lines, you know? And so, you, okay, well, so Pepper comes on stage and he has his lines and he walks through the door and does his delivery. And, and I'd be thinking like, well, what's so hard about that? In the same way that we often imagine, well, what's so hard about walking off my front porch and going out into my day? Because I think that your, the, the story that you are telling about your experience on stage is a powerful reminder of what it means for us to be people who are being spiritually formed. Our stories that we tell are always being formed by much bigger stories. They're being formed by much the, the story that we believe that we're living in. If I believe that I'm living in a story in which no matter what my theology tells me, my felt, sensed, and imaged life is one in which I don't really have much connection to God. I walk off my front porch steps in the morning and I don't have a sense that I'm walking out with God's delight at my shoulder. I'm just trying to get through my freaking day. If that's the way I'm leaving my house, that's being shaped by the story, this larger story that I'm in that is being driven by the people that I'm collaborating with. And sometimes those collaborators are, you know, my social media feeds or the news I'm watching or whatever it might be that are not actually helping me tell my story very truly. But what you've described in your theater experience is a story in which you're doing really, really hard homework in order to be ready to just walk onto the stage and your story is told. Mm. And I think from a spiritual formation standpoint, this is why it's so crucial that we are actively putting in the energy to be in the scriptures, immersed in scripture, immersed in good literature, immersed in a community of people with whom we are making confession and hearing their confession on a regular basis, immersed in practices of worship that are reminding us of the people that we want to become, that I want to be a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't want those just to be words that I can tick off in a list in my logical, linear, left hemispheric memory. I want those to be things that I imagine and feel literally in my chest in my face. I want to like, what does gentleness feel like? Just like, what does it feel like for me to be coming from the grocery store and then having to like, just walk up those flights of stairs to get to the person I'm delivering my groceries to. I have to practice doing that in order for that story to be effectively transmitted in the world that I'm going to occupy on the stage. And we are all actors on this stage. We are all living in this biblical narrative, those of us who follow Jesus, who would say that it's important for us to practice living out this sense that we are daughters and sons. We are sisters and brothers of the king. And if we say that, what do we sense? What do we image? What do we feel when we hear that? And how are we practicing 
ingesting, digesting, and metabolizing all of those things as an important part of how we are telling our story to the world. Because I tell it in order for it to be heard. I am waiting to see my story light up in your eyes because that's when I know that I have value. When I tell my story and I see the smile on your face. Okay, so like to our listeners, I mean, it was the first weekend that you and I met, I think, right? When we're in the hallway. It was the first weekend that we met in California. Yes. And we're staying at the same hotel and we're going up, I think, for a meeting. Mm -hmm. And it was later at night. And you said something like we're walking down the hallway together and you said something that utterly undid me. And I found myself like leaning up against the wall because I couldn't stand up straight because I was so bent over with laughter. And I I would like, even in that short period of time, I'm telling you that like, like what you have said, I have received it. I've heard it and I'm responding and I can barely make it to the hotel. I can barely make it to our little gathering conference room because your story is touching my life. And I would want you to hear that. And I would want to be heard by you. And this has just happened now, like hundreds of times between us in which we see each other. And I know that when I've said whatever I've said, that I've been heard. Hmm. And that's what makes my story so much more real. And this, Bren, brings us to this, uh, another quality of storytelling, and that is that because we are people who tell stories in order for them to be heard, it also equally means, interestingly enough, and somewhat counterintuitively, that the person who's listening to the story being told is as much and as and, and as and is as important a part of the storytelling venture as is the person who's telling the story. You, to, be great. To, you mean to the person that's telling the story, or do you mean to the story itself? To to both. To both. I mean, you know, if you're if you're uh, coming out to the audience in your scene and you know, the house has 20 people in it and the house seats 300. You're going to end up telling a very different story than if the house is standing room only. And so the listening audience, the degree to which we are empathically connected, that we are paying attention, that we're dialed in, we actually create the space for the story to be told in its fullest. This is why in our confessional communities that we do, that we run in our practice, we talk about this notion that you know we, we have this liturgy for how we have people tell stories, this pattern of a storyteller tells their story, and then we ask the listeners to respond, and not with what do they think about it, what's their analysis, but what do they feel? To express merely, quote unquote, merely their emotion. I felt angry, I felt joyful, I felt curious, I felt puzzled, I felt protective, I felt a range of things. And the expression of those feelings, we then, after they have a few minutes to talk to, to respond to the storyteller and say, gosh, Pepper, when you told me that story about 
you know, this part of your life, I, I just felt really protective and really angry at that person who mistreated you. How many times then, then we pass the ball back to the speaker and ask them, what is it like for you to hear the responses of your listeners? And countless times we hear the storyteller say, I, I can't imagine that my story would evoke this kind of feeling from people. I, I just think I'm telling my story. I didn't know that my story could have impact on other people's lives. And in fact, Pepper, when you told me that you felt angry on my behalf, you know, I've told that story a lot to my friends over the years. Nobody has ever said that they were angry, but like now that you mentioned it, I think, I think I actually have a lot of anger about that thread of my story in my life. And I don't know, really know what I'm doing with it, but I'm probably spending a lot of energy like trying to contain it. But you see, like, I can't know that. My story is told more truly because the listener who has access to the anger that I don't have access to about my own story, you, the listener, actually effectively help me tell the story more truly. And if you're not in the room, that part of the story never is spoken. And after the storyteller then gets to reveal what it's like for him to be heard, we then once again pass the ball back to the listeners and ask, gosh, what is it like? What do you feel? What is it like for you to hear the impact that you've had on this person's story by listening well to it and by reflecting what you've heard? And to a person, of course, they don't... Like who imagines that if I'm listening well to a person's story, that somehow I'm going to have the capacity to actually be illuminating in this moment, that I'm going to have the capacity actually to be an agent of healing merely by listening to a person because that person may be telling their story. They may be telling part of their story that no one ever knows about, or certainly that many other people may know about, but a part of their story that has never been heard by you has never been listened to in this way with empathy and curiosity that actually turns parts on of that storyteller's mind that they didn't know that they didn't know about. And so we see then that this process of the listeners being as important an agent of the storytelling process as the storyteller themselves is again, an invitation for us to consider who are the people in your lives who by your listening to them tell their story, you are going to enable their story to be told more truly. Who are the people that you are affecting and you don't even know that you're affecting? What are the ways in which you consider that you are in fact illuminating by your very, by the sheer presence of your body in the room? What is it like? What would it be like for you to begin to practice literally as a take home exercise? I want you to practice every day when you enter a room, I want you to practice Jesus being present with you, winking at you and saying, let's go illuminate the room. Let's go be present. Let's go be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Let's be that. And to imagine that's not what I have to work to become. I don't have to like work at that. Like it's who I am. You are the light of the world. Our problem is not that we're not bright enough. Our problem is we don't believe that we're light in the first place. And it's only in my being able to tell you my story about where my shame exists, because where my shame exists, 
I'm siphoning off all kinds of energy that done that then does not get to illuminate the room around me. And when I tell you my story and you help me dismantle shame and heal that and recommission me, the room gets brighter for everybody. So, so good. Gosh. I mean, I think about, you know, you talk about how we become what we focus our attention on, right? And if we, if we make it a practice uh, to start focusing our attention on the fact that we are walking into the room with God's light at our shoulder, how that could change, how that could change the way you walk into a room, the way right. you interact with people, the way, you know, yeah. Right. You know, I, I, I just love this whole conversation. Um, story is, um, you know, people do hunger to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that people's stories need to be heard. And it is, um, you know, the route to truly being known, obviously, is if you can tell your story as truthfully as possible mm -hmm. to yeah. someone else and right. have them do what you're doing right now, which is shaking your head. You're hearing me, <laughs> right. you're listening to me, you're smiling. Yeah. And, you know, it, it makes a huge difference in a person's life. Yeah. Yeah. And it sure does. We're going to talk about this more. Uh, you know, this can't just be a one, you know, 35 minute conversation, obviously. I think there's so many, so many things along the way that I wanted to to talk about, but we'll we'll continue this conversation, you know, in many ways on the podcast for everybody. So, um, Kurt, thanks for this today. It was really, really terrific. Great spending time with you. Thank you, and Pepper. I hope you uh, are able to get that elevator fixed so that you don't have to take the flight of stairs. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> love you, Kurt. All right, love you too, man. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is provided by Noah Needleman. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well and be known. I